Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. I'm, I'm very excited. This is going to be an amazing show. I want to first thank uh, Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please search him out on the internet. He's a native storyteller and his stories are amazing and they'll open your eyes to different ways of preserving and protecting our history and our cosmology. Tonight we have one of my favorite guests back on the show. We have Gary Wayne with us and he's Returning to um, address a new level of of his expertise, uh, we're going to talk about Putin's agenda and how it flows into the end time prophecies. Uh, Gary is a Christian con- contra- contrarian who has maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extensive study has encompassed the Holy Bible, the Gnostic scriptures. Scriptures, the Gnostic scriptures, the Qumran, the Gita, Gilgamesh, and other ancient epics, language etymology, and secret society publications. He has a vast amount of knowledge in his um, toolkit, and tonight I think you're going to find it fascinating how he brings the prophecies to life through current history and and shows and shows us how current history is a signal and a portent of, of things that are yet to come. So it's, it's, really, um, it's really an amazing amount of material he has to share, and, and I'm hopeful that all of you will pay attention and, and be educated to a, a new level and degree of understanding of the journey that humanity is on. Welcome to the show, Gary. So glad you could be with us tonight. Well, so happy to be back, and thank you so much for inviting me back, and very much looking forward to this, the uh, discussion tonight, because I think it's uh, in the back of the minds of most people these days as to what the heck is going on, and what does this all mean, and where is this headed? So I think, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation as we shed some light on the area that 
you know, maybe people will want to consider a little bit more and may help them better understand what's going on in the events of the world today. Well, I I think a lot of people, you know, we're we're certainly all fascinated, upset, paying attention to what's going on in the Ukraine. But I don't think most people understand the history of the Ukraine and why this is such an important event that's happening. So can you kind of explain why this is so important to us to understand, pay attention to, and address as best we can? Yeah, I think when we look at uh, events of the world, particularly the significant events, we need to understand that we're not free from our history. And everything that we see today is built on that history, and that has a long legacy and a long transgenerational relationship that's important to understand. And so, you know, there's an interesting... um, term in the Bible that is uh, says that goes something like this, that there's nothing new under the sun. So you start to see sort of similar types of events and they sort of come and they kind of go, but they, they're kind of the same events kind of repeating themselves over to a certain degree. And so if we understand that simple little concept, then we can easily maybe slide into the shoes a little bit more as to what is what is motivating people like uh, Putin these days? And, you know, I think a, a terrific analogy would be, you know, the the war in Israel between the, uh, the Palestinians and Israel. It is so ancient, and it is almost like it's inbred. And I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's just transgenerational, and it just seems to have a whole sort of life or a dynamic of its own. I think what you're seeing with what's happening in Russia, you know, has a similar sort of flavor to that. So there's a there's a history that people ought to be aware of in terms of who the Russians are and who the Ukrainians are. And so I think maybe we'll just start as to a little bit as to who, you know, the the Ukrainians are and most people might be familiar with a term called the Cossacks. And it's a term that was used for the, the people who settled into the Ukraine and that these were essentially Scythian people. And so you have a migration of the Scythians in, into, into the Ukraine. And after you get the settlement of what's going on in the Ukraine, you get a establishment of a civilization that is is technically older than the Russian civilization, and it's the home of the ancient czars, the bloodline czars. And so Kiev becomes the place of the original czars of, of the Ukraine that are going to be the ancestors for what will come later to be these to to be the Russian czars, um, and so once you start to understand there's a relationship there, things will start to to make a little bit more sense in terms of of what is going on t- today. So you have uh, what they call the uh, Rurkid dynasty 
who were the founding czars of Russia. And that, as I said, was in Kievus or Kiev, Rus, uh, circa 860 uh, AD, CE, however you want to use that abbreviation. And the, the Rukert dynasty uh, in the modern era, um, and, and if people are sort of checking, they may also want to sort of go back and understand that the Karzarians are part of this whole group and, and are part of the branch of the of the Scythians as well that are also intermingling with uh, the Ukraine people. And so you have a Tartar people that they're also called, just as the Cossacks were Tartars, and that's part of the Tartarian Scythian mythos that um, is out there today, which is another interesting rabbit hole. I won't go too far down that. But understand that you've got a group of these Scythian people that are sort of uh, intermeshed, and as they evolve then we get into the post-Jesus time and into the 80 period, you start to see uh, a newer sort of empire start to come up out of the the people that were there, and that is the Rurkus dynasty of, of Kiev. And the main bloodline of the Rurkid family is the Putyanin bloodline. And the Putyanin bloodline in history, you know, they married within all of the bloodlines in, in, in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe as well, all throughout Europe. And this is a branch from the Dukes of the Dukes that's also close, closely associated with the Romanov bloodline. And the Romanovs they actually take over from the Putyanin bloodlines that are reigning over Moscow and Russia and just after 1600. But there's still a division of these Putyanin uh, Kievan royal bloodlines that were the original czars that we've talked about. So you have, as you start going through history, you have the the expansion of this Kievan empire into Russia. And then, and as I said, that goes back to, say, circa 800, 850 AD. And then you have the, the czars that are going to be emerging in, in, in Moscow. And there is a branch um, of, of the Putyanin bloodline uh, before the Romanovs, and his name was uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich. And uh, I know you're supposed to say that a little bit faster, but I'm not Russian, so I, hopefully I didn't <laughs> um, butcher the name too much on it. And uh, so this is this is an important bloodline um, that's going to uh, be be very very important as we get down a little bit further down. But it, it's it's one of those bloodlines that are coming through into into the modern times and when you look at uh how putin is adopt has adopted some of the the czarist symbols like the double-headed and the triple crowned eagle um that is you know that is also you know same type of imagery on on the flag of the commander-in-chief it's the same eagle as the russian emblem as this double-headed eagle and so Putin, he takes a lot of sort of historical reverence out of Kiev. And then secondly, as the extension of those Kievan bloodlines come out, uh, 
Putin descends in his belief from the Tiver princes and a direct descendant of the Tiver princes is Prince Michael of Tiver or Tiver and, and Putin's parents and grandparents come from the Kalinsky region um, where the Putin family sort of mysteriously surfaces in about the 1850s. And so um, you have this Tiver bloodline that is 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 uh, celebrated. And what's very interesting about that is is that you have um, from about 980 to 1015, you have a fellow by the name of Vladimir the Great of the Rurikid dynasty who rules Kiev and Russia from 980 to 1015, and then he consolidates the Kievan Empire to include Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, and all the way up to the Baltic Sea. So this is the king of the Kievan Rus that was called the Grand Duke of Vladimir, after whom Vladimir the Great and the capital city Vladimir founded in 1151 was sort of named after and also there's a an invasion in like say the 1200s with the mongols there are another sort of division of this of the scythian people but again that's a different rabbit hole to go down and so um you have uh vladimir putin who puts up a statue of vladimir um uh, as 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 an emblem of his uh reverence for uh, Vladimir the Great, and that was erected in, in 2008. So you have a belief system here from a Russian leader who believes he has bloodlines that connects back to the Putyanin um, and the, the Rurikid dynasty, who are the original stars of, of, of the Ukraine. And this is where... We have to start to look, I think, if we want to understand what is some of the motivation of of what Putin what Putin is trying to do, and it's important to understand that because he does not he's not going to be pushed around or knocked off his agenda easily. He's not trying to recreate a new Soviet empire. He's trying to recreate the ancient empire that has a bloodline dynasty. So it's that bloodline dynasty that, that's really uh, quite important to, to understand. So if people look into Putin's genealogical history, that name Putin does not show up before about 1850. And it starts with either, depending on which historian that you're looking at, with his grandfather or his great-grandfather. And there's just one branch of that Putin line that, that's uh, um, remaining, and that's, uh, you know, Vladimir Vladimirovich, which is, you know, thought to be going back to Vladimir the Great in terms of what Putin believes. And so the Putin name comes out of nowhere in the Kiev area. And what happens is, is his father, Putin's father, moves to St. Petersburg, which is why and how he uh, how Vladimir Putin will become involved with the Russians, but it's because of the migration out of Kiev in either the second or the third generation after the start of the Putin name. Now, 
There is no history before the 1850s of a Putin name. Nowhere in the Russian history, as my research um, tends to, to uh, uncover. So this name comes out of nowhere uh, to create Putin's bloodline. So it's not a very old bloodline, yet he connects himself back to this Putyanin bloodlines. Now, what happens in the nobility, the royales, the elite of certainly Eastern Europe and I think to a, a, a certain extent even further west with the bloodlines, they have to come to deal with children that are born out of wedlock and uh, to in uh, in particularly after they've been married and then children are born out of wedlock and what they did in the tradition of the Ukraine was to give a partial name to the offspring they weren't going to give him the full name and he wouldn't have you know be in the inner circle but they certainly would not be sort of left to enslavement or to the the bottom of of the uh, cultural cultural world in, in terms of the classes so and they were to you know moderately degree fairly well looked after and so this is thought to be how the Putin name comes about is from uh, the Putyanin and the offspring of a child born out of wedlock, which would have been um, uh, the grandfather of, uh, of, of, of Putin, which was Ivan Putin, is, is generally thought to be the name. So you also have uh, Peter Parakovich Putin, who is the father of Ivan. So you could have that one as well, but either or, that's where the bloodline begins. And so you you have this understanding within Putin that he has these royal bloodlines and that he's the successors of the Romanovs who are the successors of the Kievan dynasties. And what he's after is, is to, to set up this empire that was once... Uh, you know, included the Ukraine and the Baltic states and all the way up to, to the Baltic Sea. And I don't think he's going to be stopped before he gets there. And it's not that he is not wanting to be part of the New World Order. He just wants a larger position in the New World Order. And I'm not defending anything that he's doing. I'm just saying from his perspective, he's just trying to reassemble what he believes is part of his natural um, inheritance by hereditary right as the royals would look at it upon. So that's just sort of an opening sort of let's set the table as to what might be going on in terms of what's going on in Putin's mind as it connects to the war in the Ukraine. And one of the reasons why he hasn't destroyed Kiev because I think that's the last thing he wants to do because he wants to save that as sort of this uh, legacy city that he would probably set on a pedestal once he gets control of the Ukraine. It, it, it almost feels as though he feels that he is destined for this. So that... Yeah, so I, that think th I think... It, you know, so that... So that you know, you can't talk logic to him. It feels as though he believes it's his destiny. And, yeah, you know, and, and, and again, he, I'm, I think he does. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not defending him, but I am to a, to a point. If that's the case, it is. It makes you understand better what it is he's because because it's it's sort of like um, you know if you if you believe this, then 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 you know if you believe this is destined by God or who, whoever or whatever. That that then you go on faith that if I'm destined for this it will happen, and and it almost sounds delusional, similar to Hitler in many ways. You know, Hitler believed that he was destined to rule the world, and and um, he he didn't quite make it. Putin feels the same way, um, and when you look at him, when you when you he has the air of one who believes that they are entitled to greater things than they have. And, you know, again, it's his state of mind, but where would that come from? Is this, is this something that is inbred in him? Is, I mean, like, very, like a lot of the stuff with end times prophecies, um, Things happen in spite of humanity, and is this something that's happening in spite of humanity? Is is there a part of him that is going to keep driving in spite of the fact that a part of him may say this is crazy? Yeah, I, I think so. And there's a narcissism that comes along with this, uh, almost like you know godlike syndrome, right? So. Uh-huh. And that they believe they, and he believes he probably has the divine right uh, to to do this. So that's the level that it takes to do what he's trying to do. I mean, he is trying to take on the whole world, except that he was smart enough to get the backing of the Chinese, which plays, I think, a significant role in kind of the backdrop of what's going on here as well. And so you have um, this, this, I guess, this narcissism that he thinks that he should be uh, the ruler of this large empire. What one hopes he doesn't have is that it escalates to a level that Hitler had where he thought he should be the, the king of the world. Um, but it, it may get to that, or it may, it may be perhaps his um, successor that will uh, go ahead and, and take that to that next level. And I don't, I, don't, I don't say that lightly, and I don't think that we're into World War III yet. I, I just think that we're into an area where there is a flexing of muscles that are out there, uh, in terms of saying we want a larger role in this new world order than what the Europeans are wanting us to have. And the Chinese have the same opinion. And I think the Chinese are looking at what is happening uh, with what Russia is doing, and Russia is doing it with their blessings. And that, you know, Putin went to the Olympics uh, to announced with Xi this new alliance that has no limits and that Putin was purpose, purposefully waiting till after the Olympics to do the invasion. And there's 
you know, if you're going to do an invasion into the Ukraine in this time of the year, you have to do it before the spring or after the spring. So he waited till after the Olympics and got it started. He may have been better off to wait to, to when the ground was dry in May, but he chose to go earlier, hoping maybe he could win it a little bit faster than he than he wants. But he's got the full backing of the Chinese. They're not criticizing on him. He's also got the silent backing of the second most populous nation of the earth, India, who is buying the oil from him. And you have what's going on here, not only this watching and learning from uh, what's going on from the Chinese perspective, but they have their expansion desires as well. And I, and there are, I think Xi is a lot more of a, stra- a long-term strategist than what Putin is. And so he wants to see how the world relax, reacts to Putin before he starts extending his empire some more. Of course, you know, Taiwan is the one that's on his his list, and if he was if he was going to look at invading Taiwan, he would look at windows for military advance, just like Putin would in terms of the winter months and the spring months, because you don't want to be having your army or mechanized army bogged down in the mud. They have a uh, a different challenge. They they will have to cross the sea to get to Taiwan, and the seas between Taiwan and China to do an amphibious invasion are best done in April, which we've already passed, and in October. So look for those windows down the road for when they're ready to go because, uh, as I say, the waters are a lot smoother. And what comes with the Chinese alliance is something that you know a lot of people aren't aware of what China and Russia and seemingly India is working on behind the scenes. And this is... Uh, a whole new system that's being developed so that you have China wanting to take their currency to the level of being the world currency and replace the U.S. dollar. And above that, they also have their own sort of parallel world bank. So they don't need the West's world bank. They don't need the U.S. currency. And more and more, they're going to force the world into uh, the currency of the East. And that will eventually come into one. But in the meantime, what you're seeing is sort of a a play on that is, is you have the Russians demanding that European countries pay for their oil or their gas in, in rubles as opposed to U.S. dollars. And you're starting to see China do the same thing with other countries that they're not going to use U.S. currency. They're going to use the Chinese yuan to do that. So you have this alliance that's being set up that is going to be, I think, in the classic sort of dualistic um, understanding of East versus West or good versus evil, depending on um, which side of the world you're on and who is good and who is evil, that is going to be assembling together, um, led by China. And China is going to be, you know, the real playmaker. So um, I wouldn't look for China to back away from, from Russia. Um, and I will also think that I think um, either my speculation would be that either Putin or his successor would get out of control and make a play even beyond what this uh, Eastern alliance is shaping up to be. And also notice that India, they don't even criticize 
uh, Russia on this war. They're absolutely um, silent on, on, on the whole issue. And, you know, you've got uh, the two largest populations working with Russia uh, sort of silently together as they seem to be looking to, to reshape the world and what that new world order is going to look like. Well, what I what I keep seeing here is ancient ancient hostilities seem to be coming into play again, where we thought they were at peace. And and I'm looking at Israel especially, thinking that that this is yet another area that's going to become hot and bothered um, in the next six months or so. It, it feels as though there's an energy of conflict and war that is embracing the entire planet. And because the United States doesn't have the antiquity that Russia and China and Europe and, and Israel and you know all of these other places have, the only thing that we have going on within our borders um, is, is the, the infighting politically. But but that's that's small cookies compared to the historic um, anger and and frustration that that is going on here, and it, the, the Roman Catholic Church is coming into play as well. So that so that you know you, you're getting all of these power mongers who are doing battle against one another, and and I can't for the life of me figure out. Why? Unless this is just part of a major plan that is working its way out and we just don't have an understanding of, of all it's going to lead to. Yeah, I think we're seeing the uh, the building blocks of what's, what's going to be coming. And, you know, I'll touch on that maybe. You know, I will touch on that a little bit later. And it's interesting that you bring up what's going on in the Middle East and you've got not only like the Israelites and the Palestinians, it's just this this transgenerational yeah. feud. You've got the Persians uh, with the Iranians and the Iraqis sort of coming together, and Iran is becoming the dominant um, nation um, of, of, of the Muslims, even though there's always going to be two sides with the Sunni and the Shia um, opposing each other to a certain degree, and that's one winner-takes-all type of thing gets control. But the Persians are also related in history to being, um, in a lot of cases, not a lot of cases, but from a lot of points of view as being sort of pro-generated by the same type of people, which were the wandering Aryans. Uh, uh, and, you know, the Persian kings were... Um, you know, said that they had a bloodline that went back to the to the Aryans, and those were part of the Indo-Aryans, which are part of the Scythian group. There was four groups of Indo-Aryans, and there's a dark-haired uh, version of these Aryans with uh, black beards. You know, like Gilgamesh would be depicted, or Nimrod is depicted, or the Syrian kings, and that the Aryans not only went down into the area. Of, of Persia, but also into the Indus Valley and started that region. So you might see from that sort of ancient transgenerational sort of um, association, you might see the Iranians as the new Persia coming together as part of this Eastern alliance. And I think we're, and again, I think we're seeing that uh, starting to come together. 
So I would expect more of that to, 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 to continue because you have, um, you have a war that is predicted to happen in the, in, in, in the last seven years. And it tends to sort of group a lot of these nations that will be fighting in that war within that eastern group that we're talking about who will invade Israel in, in, in the end time. And so that's Persia, that's uh, Gog of uh, Magog um, as part of that alliance. And what's interesting, you know, about that is, is that um, you have, you know, two, two historians that sort of weave that into a connection with Josephus and Herodotus, who um, is linking um, Gog Magog, the chief prince of Meshesh, as it shows up in, in the Gog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 that I was referencing. You have the, the people of Meshech and you have the people of Magog. These are all connected back to uh, being the ancestors of 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 a people that intermarried with the Scythians, and that would be the descendants of Japheth, who Magog derives from. But the word Gog does not show up in the Bible; does not show up in the Table of Nations anywhere. But you have them labeled as Gog, uh, chief prince of 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 Meshech, of Gog of Magog, chief prince of Meshech, and Gog and Magog seem to be names that were either renamed to the descendants of Japheth, uh, who moved, uh, migrated into the Asia Minor area where many of the Scythian groups were, and I think were either named, um, changed their names to Scythian names, or they were later changed to denote something in history by the biblical writers, because in the time before the flood, and understand this happens just after the flood with the migrations of the descendants of Japheth to Asia Minor, to where the Scythians are and the Indo-Aryans, is that you have a parent god in Greek mythology named Iapetus who creates giants from offspring. And that happens to be, you know, three of them, I'll just name three of them, uh, of, of the sons are Albion, which is, you know, sort of connected to England because of the migration of giants to England in, in their mythology, as well as Gog and Magog. And so these were names of giants before the flood, probably were names of giants again after the flood, and I think that's who they take the name from. And Gog is thought to be, not thought to be, but defined in the Old Testament and as it's used in the New Testament with the Greek going back to the original Hebrew for the source, to be an Antichrist figure of the end time. Not the Antichrist, but an Antichrist-type figure. And so when you look at what Josephus and Herodotus Herodotus were talking about, is is that they relate uh, Gog, Magog, and Meshech back to uh, these ancient tribes of Tubal and, and, and Meshech that included the Magagites. And so these are the people that migrated uh, from Scythia, whom the Japhethites intermarried with, with those Scythians, and then migrated northwards to um, start 
the Ukrainian Kiev dynasty and then started the, the, the Russian dynasty. And you had Scythian waves that went all the way to, to Mongolia and are uh, believed in, in a lot of research to have been the, the bloodlines of, of Genghis Khan because he's depicted as a, as in, in images as a Tartarian or as a Scythian. Same people, just different names for the same, for the same people. And if you take that name, um, Moscow, um, it's really kind of interesting because um, you have the airport that's named in Russia that's Mokva, and that's Romanized for Moskva and English for Moscow. And this is, uh, you know, Latin Moscovia, uh, which is, you know, transliterated from Russian Moskova for the Principality of Moscow, which was a Grand Duchy of Muscovy, uh, which was part of the Kievan um, Duchy. But what's interesting as you take that back in, in its understanding that um, not only is Mokva, Moskva and, and Moscow and Muscovy, they're all sort of transliterations of, of the same name as, is, as in Muscovite, you have the same names of the people that are linking that back to the same people as Meshech. And typically Meshech and Tubal were listed together. And this, these are the people that founded the, the, the Ukraine and then into Russia. So you have historic, historians that are tracing them back even though the names are slightly different, they're just transliterated names that um, you know have come down the come down the pike that uh, formed the name Moscow and and uh, you know Muscovy and, and Muscovites. And they've got all as I say, you'll, as you read through some of the history, you'll, you'll see some of those names um, that that pop up. But understand, they're talking about the same people. And Herodotus has noticed that the Muscovites. Um, they lived in northern Asia Minor, southeast of the Black Sea, before they migrated north, north and east of there. Well, you, you know, you, I keep, I keep looking at what is going on today, and, and, you know, the element of the end times comes in here, and, and yet. It, it feels it feels like it doesn't quite fit, but it almost fits. And it, it's I mean, end times is end times, and what what we see happening here is a restructuring of our whole society and our whole world uh, into the one world order, which is which will eventually happen. You know, I I, I can't see that 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 we will be able to avoid it. That, that it is something that is going to happen at some point in time. It may not be for the next hundred or two hundred years, but but he, you know the impression I get from a lot of the stuff that you're writing is that you think that the end times are actually here. Yeah, I actually think we're in the fig tree generation, and we don't know how long a generation is. It could be 40 years that the book of Exodus talks about. It could be 70 years that the book of Psalms refers to for a generation. Or it could be 120 years in Genesis 6-3, which is part of the verses of the creation of the giants, where the life was limited to 120 years. And so we could be in that fig tree generation, and part of understanding and time prophecy through the fig tree generation is that 
the southern kingdom, which was Judah, versus the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and they split after Solomon. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel that was lost into the world in the time of the Assyrians um, in about 720 B.C., they were known as the vine in, in, in biblical prophecy, but you have Judah who's known as the fig tree. And when Jesus was here and before he started to go into his you know, final, uh, final year or so, he had and, and started to present end time signs. He killed a fig tree, and uh, you know thereafter uh, he started to provide you know the details for the destruction of Jerusalem, and then you get the uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, Luke 21 passages where he gives the chronology for for the end times and the signs. And the fig tree in the fig tree generation that is in those. Um, the New Testament prophecies of Mark, uh, Luke, and, and Matthew says there's a specific, you know, generation that's the fig tree. And so when you see the fig tree blooming, uh, which is, you know, a reference back to the tree that, that, that he had killed after taking a fruit from it, this is Judah being in the covenant land again. Now, I don't think it started with becoming a nation state that was declared in 1947 and the war in 1948. I think it's probably more if we are in the fig tree generation that it's around 1967 and the taking of Jerusalem because end time prophecy essentially revolves around Jerusalem just as that Gog war does. And so they have to have control of Jerusalem. So if we are in the fig tree generation, and we are in the beginning of the sorrows, and we ought to see things that are starting to develop within the beginning of the sorrows and the birth pangs, which includes wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, uh, famine, and, and earthquakes, and they would be getting stronger as, as we go. So my gut feeling is, is we're in the fig tree generation, but we're not at the last seven years, as Daniel 9.27 talks about, with this world covenant being cemented, which is is the launch of the last seven years and the coming together through Babylon of the world empire. But what's important to understand is, is that all throughout the fig tree generation, you're going to have the same catastrophes repeating, just getting stronger and closer together. And this what is going on with Ukraine, and I think is part of the wars and the rumors of war aspect, and it's a shuffling of position, because as we now move into the prophecies of the book of Daniel that, you know, mesh up perfectly to what Jesus said, because Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and that uh, all things have to fit around with what Jesus said. And people should put prophecy from my approach and how I try and do it is put everything around what Jesus said, not vice versa, as, as a lot of people do. Then the chronology and the understanding becomes a little bit more clear. And so they also match up the Daniel prophecies with the Revelation prophecies. And again, the Revelation prophecies will match up with what Jesus said if you just sort of allow yourself to to, to do that. And in the book of Daniel, you have Daniel 2, 7, and 8, which is really, really important in terms of the geopolitical scenario that's going to create the end time. And we're also going to need the rise of Babylon, which is the universal religion, which is going to be uh, 
the dynamic force that is going to assemble or finally assemble this new world order and it's going to control the new world order as revelation 17 talks about as she rides the beast of empires and so when we look at daniel 2 and 7 you get a depiction of some imagery daniel 2 is what i call the metallic empires and out of the Roman Empire, you have, the, which is the uh, Iron Empire, you have another ten-toed empire as part of this imagery of this big statue, which uh, Babylon is the head. And then as you get down to the bottom, you've got the two legs of the old Roman Empire. And the extension out for the end-time empire are the feet. So you've got an east and a west, or two portions of this, empire and you've got 10 toes which represent the 10 empires that will be forming in the end time which coincidentally is the same number of groups of nations or spheres of influence or um, trading blocks however you want to qualify that as what the club of rome which was created in the 1960s late 1960s who reports to the committee of 300 formed to guide the world into these 10 groups of nations for this new world order that they're trying to set up. And so you also have in Daniel 7 the imagery of the 10 kings and the, and the 10 horns. And that's the same imagery in Revelation 13, Revelation 17, and the same imagery for the red dragon beast of empires that's underneath the woman in Revelation 12. So you have these 10 kings that are going to have to be part of this end-time world empire that are going to have to jostle for position. And it's interesting we have that imagery of the two legs coming out of the ancient Roman Empire, and you have Constantinople as being the eastern center for the, the original re religion of Rome, and Rome being the western center. And in about 1000 AD, they split over the Trinity argument, and you have Eastern Orthodox Church, which also has the double-headed eagle as their symbolism, um, and is the religion that is embracing um, Putin right now and supporting him in his endeavors. So you're going to have this religious thing that's going to be part of these rising uh, empires that will eventually come into one universal religion uh, for for the world government. So I think what you're starting to see is is some of these empires starting to come together and look for these ancient bloodlines to be a driver of these uh, these these, these empires. And so you have these bloodlines of the royal czars that Putin believes he belongs to, that goes back to the Scythians who, and the Tuatha Dé Danann, which were post-Diluvian giants, who started all of the kingships, part of that ancient rivals. And you have had rivals with the royals all throughout time. They're, they are working in a general direction to a world government and have been from the beginning, but there can only be one when it comes down to who is going to have the king of the world or the Antichrist, as we understand it from a Christian perspective, who's going to rule the world in the last three and a half years and will rise out of 
these ten toes, these ten horns, and these ten kings, as as uh, Daniel two seven eight and Revelation thirteen and seventeen describe. So you have well, that's what I think you're starting to see form, and I think you need to people need to pay more attention to the bloodlines that are developing, and everybody looks at the Western bloodlines, you know, of Rex Deuce or the Black Nobility. That's European bloodlines. There's bloodlines all over the world, and the most important one to keep in mind at this point in time is the bloodline out of China with. Uh, Xi Jinping, and his first name, uh, it's just really the last name is, is the Chinese word order, Xi, um, derives from the, the Li family bloodline or understood as the Xi Western bloodline of the Xia, XIA bloodline of the ancient dynasties of the um, of the uh, dragon dynasties of China, and it was the Li and the Xia dynasty uh, that produced all of the different empires and a succession of kings right out of prehistory, right to the time of communism taking over. And Xi is putting back together his empire that he believes China uh, created uh, in its uh, ancient history. So you're going to see more of that become as an influence as you see these 10 groups of nations start to come together. And what's also interesting is, is you also get some countries that are um, more centrally European located in this Magog alliance that we're talking about earlier out of Ezekiel 38, like Gomer, which is the, the, the German nation. So you might see... Some of the Kaiser bloodlines start to to resurface again, and that you might see Germany dominating Central Europe with a set of group of nations that would split the current EEC. But do look for Germany to become more involved in the military aspect and, and international politics as these wars and rumors or wars continue and particularly as you're saying they're starting to i think move in that direction with the ukraine war and look for that to continue so i think what we're going to see is this continual shuffle to position themselves to have a larger position in this new world order what's interesting is that you know we came through a president before biden who um was wanting a larger role for America in this new world order. It wasn't necessarily totally against the new world order. He just wanted the U.S. to have a larger position. And I think he was trying to position his family to be sort of leading that positioning in in the world. And again, all I can tell people is if they want to understand what's going on in the world today, you have to focus in on bloodlines and you have to focus in on some of the ancient history to try and understand what's going on. And I'd also, there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting passage in uh, the book of Psalms that talks about these bloodlines. Um, and it starts in Psalm 21, nine. I'll just read it quickly because it doesn't, it's not that long, but it, just to give the people an idea that we can look at things, what's going on in the world. We can relate that, 
to what's written in the Bible, and people who are of other religions, they can relate that to what's what's written in in their religions as well, because everything's based off of this this collective same history that we have that we see manifested today. So Psalm twenty one nine, Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger the end time the the lord will swallow them up in his wrath the wrath of god uh, at you know at the time of the last year in the year of the lord's wrath and the year when armageddon comes about and the fire shall devour them here's where it gets interesting 2110 their fruits thou shall destroy from the earth and their seed from among the children of men for they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. From a biblical perspective, it's these bloodlines that are talked about in Daniel 2, uh, verses 40 to 42, that will be commingling themselves with the seed of humankind. So that's either the descendants of the giants through the beast empires, and or new giants that will somehow resurface uh, on the earth, which a lot of people believe, and I'm open to, but for sure we know the descendants um, will be from these bloodlines. These are the royals, the, the kings of God. Ra is being king. Al is a transliteration of El for God or angel that comes out of Hebrew. These are the ones who believe they have the divine right to rule uh, that was handed down from the Baalim since uh, since the flood. And so once we start to understand that these bloodlines are at play and that they'll be part of the of the ten king empire of the end time that's going to be subservient to Babylon, the universal religion, which still has to surface. So we're not like right like I say, we're not right in those last seven years yet. But she'll be the one that will sponsor Antichrist to negotiate the covenant and then he will use that to ride to um uh crowning himself as the king of Jerusalem in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the last seven years. Okay, I want to get back to bloodlines again. Um <clears throat> are we talking Nephilim bloodlines? Are we talking um where's the blood coming from, I guess is is what I'm looking for. where where is the source of the bloodlines? That, that are going to be um, battling this out? Yeah, very, very, very good question. And again, very important for the context to understand what, what, it, what is going on. So after the flood, uh, you have the Babel incident with Nimrod and the dispersion of the people, and the people are going to be dispersing out, and they're going to intermarry with people who are already there. These are the aboriginals, um, that were there since before the flood and before the people circa 100 years after the flood uh, start to migrate out because the language has been confused. And they're going to intermarry many of them, as we talked about with the descendants of Japheth, with the Raphaim, as I like to call them, which are the Aryans and the Tuatha Dé Danann and the Scythians. Those are all the same groups. There's four groups of giants that show up after the flood that are defined uh, secularly as, as Indo-Aryans. And these are the giants after the flood, the Raphaim. Uh, some people will call them Nephilim. I make a distinction between giants after the flood as being Raphaim, as they're described in the Bible, and Nephilim as being giants that were before the flood, and the Raphaim 
probably aren't as big, and there are a few different distinctions between between the, the Rephaim and the Nephilim, but giants nonetheless. Okay. The Rephaim, what they do is, is they establish and usurp all of the kingships over the people very shortly after Babel. And from there, they start the bloodlines and the dynasties. So the royals take their genealogies back to these Rephaim and to the specific fallen angel who created that Rephaim patriarch. And the beast empires, which are uh, understood as seven in total, actually eight with Antichrist being the eighth empire, the full number of the beast empires will be seven and the eighth is the Antichrist in the last three and a half years. These are the major powers of civilization that affect the nation of Israel. It's the Raphaim kings that are kings over these dynasties, and they are, the first one is is Egypt, uh, which is the nation where Israel is made into a nation of slaves after Jacob uh, takes his sons there during the famine, and then they come back to the covenant land over 400 years later, have all of the wars with the giants and, and the Canaanites to take the land. The next beast empire are the Assyrians, which is sort of an intermarriage between the descendants of Nimrod and the giants because he intermarries with the giants. And they start the Mesopotamian kingships, and there's a few different branches of them, including the Persians, which are the Aryans. And they are going to be the beast empire that comes to power after Egypt, and they're going to take Israel into exile. And then you have the next one, which is Babylon, who succeeds the Assyrians, and they're going to take the southern kingdom into exile. Persia is going to permit, which is the next one afterwards, and who they take the, their lineage back to, to the dark-haired giants, um, the, the, the Aryans. Um, they're going to permit Judah to go back to their homeland and build the second temple. And then you have... Uh, the Romans and, and, and the Greeks, and of course the Greeks conquer um, you know, the whole world, including Israel as well. And then you have the Romans who are going to, again, you know, dominate Israel, destroy the temple. And so the beast empires are intimately connected to Israel and to Judah, and particularly uh, Judah. Um, after Israel was was dispersed. And it's out of this Roman Empire that will come the end-time empire and will be intimately connected with the southern kingdom of Judah as well, just as this covenant will per- permit the people of Judah to begin their sacrifices on a wing and extremity and overspreading of the temple for the first three and a half years of the last seven. And then Antichrist will take that away when he destroys Babylon and sets up his own religion. So these bloodlines, these rivalries, they have been dominating society since before the flood and then again after the flood. And they set up the complete feudal system, the caste system, the class system that that has come down through our history, the four class system. And they're going to reestablish that again uh, with with this end-time empire. So directionally, they're all working together, but there can only be one family that's going to dominate. So you're going to have 
rival families that are going to be trying to present themselves as being the legitimate Antichrist. Um, they would call it the Messiah. Um, and Jesus warned us that there would be many Antichrists. So we have to be aware of that and that uh, we can't just jump at the first one that looks like it's the Armageddon War because there's going to be several large wars, including the Gog War and then including Armageddon. And it's going to be the Gog War that Antichrist rides the power on as claiming it to be the Armageddon battle. So we have to be careful of that. And also in the epistles of John, we get told there's multiple Antichrists in the end time as well. So it's the bloodlines and the rulers that will be establishing themselves that will be a significant sign as to how close that we're getting to the end time. And we haven't seen all of these bloodlines surface to come to the top yet. Uh, but I think Putin might be and Xi might be the first ones and will accelerate things in terms of moving government into that kind of model based on the success that they're going to have. So, so in other words... The bloodlines, if they are, if their source is all from the Nephilim, are are really sources of fallen angels, which you know is almost demonic type of energy. So that so that what we're seeing ruling the world are organizations that all come from a negative, a fallen angel, a demonic energy. So how can humanity hope to win anything if the leaders of of all of these one world governments, you know, they come together, they're clashing, but they're all Nephilim energy, so so they're all really um, anti-Christ. So how does humanity survive? Well, their goal isn't to have much of humanity survive. They would like to have the, the New Age, the New Atlantis, as they would like to call it, and understand that why the Atlantis mythos is so popular is because you had them as the model civilization in the Greek uh, mythology and history, and as being the center you know, the capital of the world, so to speak. They were thought of as the helm of world government as they were trying to take over the whole world uh, just before the flood. And that's what they're trying to recreate again is when you have a time when you have the gods walking amongst humankind and creating this nobility race. So the Nephilim before the flood and then the Raphaim after the flood, they're created to lead humankind into oblivion. They're not looking after humankind's interests. The the fallen angels created them because they didn't want humankind to be raised in the future time, to be raised up like angels. And as the New Testament tells us, to judge those fallen angels for the crimes that they created against humanity and against creation. So their job is to... um, destroy as many humans as possible in in, in this physical world until, um, you know, they can't do it anymore, which culminates in the the Armageddon battle and Jesus comes back and and prevents all from being destroyed, all flesh from the earth, which would happen if they were permitted to go on any longer. 
So you have atomites who were created as being the resolution to the angelic rebellion. And all of this is revenge of the fallen angels to try and make sure that the, the creation of the atomites isn't fulfilled. Uh, that kind of ended with the resurrection of Jesus, and in First Peter is actually talking to a lot, uh, some of these more impassioned and evil of the fallen angels in the abyss, and essentially telling them that when he rises on the Sunday, your fate is sealed to the lake of fire, as, as the book of Matthew talks about. But their job is to, uh, why the Nephilim and Raphaim were created, they were there to lead humankind away from God and into destruction. And if you look at the sort of hierarchy that works, you have the spiritual realm and then you have the spurious offspring ruling on the earth. And these are the, the, the offspring of the, of the fallen angels, the Raphaim and the Nephilim, as I've described. This is a world that is run by the council of the gods until Jesus comes back. And the council of the gods shows up in Psalm 82 that the angels, the fallen angels, rule over. And this is a different council than talked about in other parts of the book. This is the counterfeit council that God has a council in heaven, and, and in this council is overseen by Satan and his rebellious angels and, and his host of heaven. Host of heaven is, is the Hebrew word Saba, which infers rank and order like an army. And so you have a hierarchy within the angelic realm and the ones at the top are ruling over the 70 nations of the world. And where that number comes from is the uh, at a Deuteronomy 32, it's referencing the 70 sons of Jacob that were born in Egypt as a reference to the number, and this, just as you have 70 sons that were the sons of Adam, even though we don't get 70 sons listed, but apparently there was based on Deuteronomy 32, and it's talking about the seven sons, uh, 70 sons of Adam that represented the nations of the Adamites before the flood, and the 70 patriarchs are the same number of patriarchs in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles, who are the patriarchs for the, for the uh, nations, and it's called the Table of Nations, and that's recorded in 1 Chronicles 1 and, and Genesis 10. These are the 70 gods that rule over those 70 nations that are part of the council of, of the gods. The offspring are provided from the council of the gods, which is, I would look at it as being the Balim of, the, uh, of, of Mount Hermon, um, and Mount Hermon being the location for that Council of the Gods, and look for that to be the location for the Battle of Armageddon to be fought um, in the end time, and very close to the place where the Gog War is going to be fought, but they're in, in two different places, the two wars. But the Armageddon War, and I won't get into the minutiae of that right now, but it was likely to be fought at, at the base of, of Mount Hermon. And so you have this Council of Gods that created spurious offspring to rule over humankind with the divine right to rule and hereditary right of succession, 
that they take back to a specific God. So when they take a coronation initiation and an oath, they're swearing to God, but in their belief system is a specific God that they take their genealogies back to through a specific Raphaim patriarch back to a specific angel. So when we look at what the, uh, the geopolitical climate looks like is you have a, a, still a world that is being run by the nobility elite, which is the extended families of the Raphaim, who hold the true power and the true money that will be resurfacing, I think, uh, in, in the years to come as this new world order starts to uh, take shape. Uh, but there can only be one. It's kind of like that movie that does the uh, matriarchal fairy allegory to what's going on where you have the Highlander um, movies and there can only be one and they take the head and they get this quickening as opposed to the taking of the blood that would be in the uh, the, the dragon patriarch allegories. But at the end of the day, there's only one that rises to be the leader of the world. It's that same type of thing that's going on. And that's what's behind the scenes of everything that takes shape on a globalistic perspective. Well, you know, when you start to explain it this way, it it makes you wonder when you see, you know, these these very rich people who who don't feel that that laws apply to them. And, you know, they basically just do their own thing and they don't they don't feel that they're ever going to be held accountable. And <clears throat> You, it, you know, it's just, it's a little frightening to think that, that the battles that are going on here at this point in time are not the bat- a battle between good and evil, it's a battle between two evils. It is, and, and it really makes sense if you understand how the world is currently ruled over until, we, and unfortunately we're going to have to get through the end time to, to get get a shift away from that. But if you understand polytheism as being a dualistic religion, you typically understand it as being good versus evil on a macro level where the the God of the Bible would be equivalent to the rebellious fallen angels or gods as they're called in, in polytheist religions and that there's this perpetual battle that's led by the leader of the gods whether or not it's a Kronos or it's a um, Anu, uh, which are all parent gods, they all all the pantheons around the world essentially have the same pantheon. It's just different vernacular names um, in the different cultures. And then you have the offspring gods that rise up uh, to take the place of the parent gods, and they typically are the ones that are shown after the flood, and you might have Osiris and Zeus and Anki as being classic uh, offspring gods that take over and rule after the flood. Um, so you have this classic dualism that they have in their religion that this war is going to go on forever. But within polytheism, there's a micro that I would, maybe it's a poor word, but it's like a an internal uh, dualism as well. And you see this in a lot of doctrines within polytheism. You have uh, good magicians and you have black magicians. You have good wizards and you have evil wizards. You have white witches and you have evil witches. You have white magic, you have black magic, you have good 
uh, Nephilim, you have evil Nephilim. Um, and that's a standard doctrine that you have that dualism that is fighting between themselves all along, let, let alone internal rivalries within the groups beyond that. But you you have that constant theme, and that's why I think it's important to understand how the end time ten king empire will shape into two factions that will be fighting against it. There'll be factions within the five empires of each side, but you'll have that sort of alliance, and one will be termed as good, and one will be determined as evil, but they all worship the same pantheon of fallen angels or the same pantheon of gods, depending on what your religious uh, you know, biases are. And mine is obviously Christian, so I tend to look at them as fallen angels. Now, with what's going on today in our society, on all levels, there's so much hate and crime and, and flat-out evil. Um, is this, is this, can this be attributed to, quote-unquote, I'm not sure exactly what this is, but demon possession is that people who are giving into that demonic energy that they have within them, or is this actual demonic possession that is that is triggered in order to destabilize whatever is there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's it's some of that, and there's there's just a lot of sort of preparation that has, has, has gone on to prepare people for this last generation. And so I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. So uh, you have certainly a lot of demons that are roaming out there. And they tend to, uh, you know, spread a lot of evil. They're also they also work with a lot of the secret societies and the Royal Masonic uh, orders and bloodlines. And that when you reach to be a certain adept, you actually have an interaction with them. And whether or not you want to call them demons, you want to call them uh, angels, you want to call them the, the celestial white masters or the ascended masters or aliens, they're all the same sort of groups of people that they're kind of dealing with, um, that they're communicating with all of the time and coordinating with, with the physical sort of rule over over the earth. With the violence that we see, I think that's as much as conditioning and brainwashing, and at the same time, I think they're igniting people against people with the divisive of racism, the divisiveness of, of pitting different groups against different groups, whether or not it's Christians against Muslims, whether or not it is uh, male against female or this belief against that belief. I think they wedge the people into a sense of anarchy because once you get anarchy, you can start to move on the globalist agenda a lot faster, just as if you have have confusion and chaos in contrived catastrophes that I think these birth sorrows will be, will be all man-made catastrophes um, that will be able to transcend national borders with their agenda to bring this order about. So I'm looking at this anarchy and I'm looking at uh, the contrived things that they're doing to create the anarchy and to create the catastrophes all as part of the same overall strategy to drive 
uh, people who are poles apart in their beliefs or ideologies or whatever and cattle herd them to the middle to the open arms of the globalists, which are all part of the bloodlines. Well, what's going to happen to the element of religion then? Because, you know, I, I mean, obviously many, there are civil, there are great similarities between a lot of the religions and then some that, that you know, just don't even fit in. But, but what's happening, for instance, with the Catholic Church and the papacy and Rome, I mean, that's part of one of your power structures. Is that connected to these fallen angels as well? Well, I think Rome will pay, uh, the Roman Church will play a, a significant role in bringing about the end time. And I would uh, suggest that we have, uh, for the first time, a, uh, a what, I, what I would call a secret society, the Jesuit order within the within the Catholic Church. You have a Jesuit Pope today. And it's interesting uh-huh. that Nostradamus predicted three Antichrist figures. And uh, he also predicted, and we've had two of them, he also predicted that the last pope would be the black pope. Well, the leader of the Jesuit order classified as a black pope, and the leader of the Vatican was typically understood as the white pope. Now you have a black pope that's got the uh, the whole organizational structure of the Roman Church and changing doctrine and trying to unite Christian religion and other religions working actively to do so in place. I don't know whether he's the last pope or not, because that's a Rosicrucian prophecy. Nostradamus was Rosicrucian and part of the bloodlines. Um, But he is certainly doing things that will bring about a universal religion. But we're going to need a lot more than the slow crawling aspect of working across lines to negotiate, even though they're working hard at it. I mean, you have all of the Christian religions working together to compromise all of their individual doctrines to form sort of a unified Christian front. You've got the same tactic going on that is that... uh, um, You know, the Pope is working with, with the Muslims and the Jewish people and and trying to create this Abraham a covenant within the religions, which is a little bit different than the Abraham covenant that um, that what Trump was working on. But this is a religious one that they will have a a, a a location that's going to be opening up soon. That's going to show the cooperation of the three religions in uh, Abu Dhabi, I believe, later this year. And yeah. so he's trying to to work that way, and also you know, with the other religions like Buddhism to sort of bring things together. But that will take forever, and as you say, there's way too many uh, divisions. So look for the false prophets that have to come on the scene as well, which we haven't seen. So, you know, we know we're not in the end time yet, even though it looks like it, because we don't have the sacrifices going on uh, on on a wing of the temple. We don't have the seven-year covenant put in. We haven't seen the ten kings come along. And before all of that, we need the prophets of Babylon to show up. And what's important to understand about that is these prophets will be prophets of doom. So I think what we're seeing is a precursor, which is I think is will be connected with the unification of this end-time religion and science, 
which is again a big hump, but it it it's likely to happen with the rise of the false false prophets. But you see the birth pang starting with we have to change and come together or we're going to be destroyed by nuclear war. We have to come together or we're going to be destroyed from the face of the earth from global warming. We have to come together or we're going to be destroyed from the earth, uh, from the earth through pestilence. And we're seeing, and I won't go through the whole litany of the apocalyptic being destroyed from the face of the earth unless we unite into one world government, which the scientists and uh, the politicians are, are working hard at. Now imagine that on a stronger scale with a true false prophet who is going to predict contrived catastrophes and that these catastrophes will be set out to to say if you do not convert to this true religion this catastrophe is going to happen and they know it's going to happen because they're part of the organizational structure that's going to cause that catastrophe and that will force people to convert to this religion and just as you, as I mentioned, you'll see science merging with it, it will come back home to its beginnings because the seven sacred sciences were created before the flood and merged with the knowledge from heaven. But the seven sacred sciences were created by Enoch, son of Cain, uh, who formed Enochian mysticism, which was the religion of the antediluvian world and the religion of the Nephilim. And he's the one who disciplined Enoch, son of Cain, was the one who disciplined those into seven groups, like uh, the seven arts that we have today. And so going back to a Rosicrucian connection here, you have uh, Francis Bacon, uh, who is the inspirational founder to the Royal Society, uh, which was the creator of education and science outside the Catholic Church that all of those organizations pay homage to today. He was the one who uh, coined the, the term the New Atlantis for the end time, where you would have this religion that would merge with science, just as it was before the flood and very shortly after the flood. That's what they see coming back. And the Royal Society was created by Rosicrucians and Freemasons in 1662 with its charter, uh, although it was forming a little bit before that, but officially with the charter in 1662. And they called themselves the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. And so you will have this merging of, of science and religion um, and bringing science home to the beginning of the, uh, the sciences that begat in this knowledge that had to be put into mystical degrees. This is education is taught with giving you degrees in university, uh, even to this day. And so the false prophets are going to be the ones who take this to a whole new level. What's interesting, and I'm not saying this is the one, but it certainly would be one like it if it's not the one, and there could be several kinds of the uh, false prophets from around the world that may come forth. But look for ones like this. And so there was, uh, I think everybody's familiar with the, uh, the the Mary apparitions, and there's been many throughout history. Um, you've got, you know, Mary apparitions from the Middle Ages uh, with Joan of Arc. You've got Mary apparitions uh, with uh, Ignatius of Loyola that led him into creating the Jesuit order that was taken over by 
Francis Borgia, Grandmaster of the Contessa or, or Montessa Order of uh, Spain in 1570, and got complete control of that order. And they view the Jesuits view everything through the seven sacred sciences. So you have this this merry apparitions that come down through the lords through Fatima. Everybody's kind of familiar with it. There's one set of apparitions that was in Medjugorje in the 90s. And in this apparition, she they're envisioning Mary, who they believe is Mary anyways, and she's depicted identically to the image in Revelation 12 of the woman. And she's initiating these six children um, for a specific time. And they will come forward on a specific day as prophets who will say, if the world doesn't convert, this catastrophe is going to happen. And if the world doesn't change their ways, the whole world will be destroyed. The Roman Church um, in the last uh, seven or eight years has fully recognized most of the uh, apparitions uh, in Medjugorje and is now have complete control through uh, Francis's edicts to control and develop and handle the whole Medjugorje situation. And if anybody understands Catholicism, Mary is a very important figure within Catholicism, and so are the apparitions. And you're going to see, I think, something like that, that just may vault the Roman Church to the forefront of this universal religion, but at the same time, it is going to renounce the deity of Jesus to do so. And we'll recognize Jesus as just a prophet, uh, an immortal prophet, and will permit itself to be brought home to polytheism. So look for continual doctrinal change within the Roman Church and look for these false prophets uh, or something like that that will bring about this universal religion and i think it's likely going to be rome because um if you look again at, at revelation 17 uh, this woman uh who rides the beast empires which is the religion of the beast empires and the daughters of, of babylon and babel is the root word out of hebrew for babylon and for the end time um uh, Babylon religion, and also understand when you take Babylon in the New Testament, both in the book of Peter and in um, Revelations, back to its its definition, Babylon was used as an allegory for Rome in the times of the writing of the New Testament and the book of Revelation. And so in Revelation 17, you have this woman riding the beast of empires and will ride the ten king empire at, in the end time whom will despise her and will hand over their power to the antichrist because they're jealous of the wealth that she will create so it's more than a religion but let's talk about it as as a religion at this point in time and she sits on seven hills and these are the seven hills of of rome uh, you know yeah. includes you know hills like you know, like Palatine Hill. And, and Vatican Hill is actually kind of a sister branch of, of Palatine Hill where the Sibylline prophecies were located before um, before Christianity. 
So, and the Vatican Hill was, was outside the old Roman walls, but as it expanded past about 800 AD, as I recall, then it was included inside the uh, the Roman city walls. These are the cities of Romulus and Remus, and the seven hills uh-huh. that they had set up to honor their pantheon of gods, which is again the typical seven, right? So, I would look at that as as a as a uh, pointing towards. Um, the Catholic Roman Church at the Vatican having a significant role, but will be changed over and absorbed by this old religion of Babylon that will come come together. Just as the Templars were, you know, the created. I know this is kind of a, a quick, ra- uh, you know, rabbit hole to go down to, but they were created um, by the Gnostics and the Royal Masons. Um, to to be a order within Christianity, within the Roman Church, that were to develop the new Babylon for the end time. And so when they were destroyed, they were replaced a few hundred years later with the Jesuits and with the taking over by the Matessa order by Borgia in 1570 to continue to do the changes to, in, within the Roman Church to get it ready for the end time. So the European families look at the Roman Church as the avenue for the uh, for the universal religion of the end time. Wow. I, I, I just, I find it hard to grasp that they would, they would devote Jesus. I mean, that's your trinity. That's, you know... The foundation. It's the only. It's the only way to unite polytheism with Christianity, with uh, the Judaic religion, and with the with the Islamic religion. Judaism and Islam would accept Jesus as a prophet, but not as the Word of God, not as part of the Trinity. So he has what to be deified. That, what does that do with the Bible? Well, it's it's going to cause a war within Christianity, and Christians who stand behind the Bible, <laughs> Christians who stand behind the Bible will be persecuted um, because they're standing against the new world order and the universal religion, um, and the Bible will be um, drafted to be interpreted allegorically, which is the polytheist, the Gnostic approach, which is an interpretive approach. So what they will propose and say, and you see a lot of this today, is that so much of what's written in the Bible is allegorical, not literal, and that to understand what it really means, you have to be an adept of the mysteries. And so you have a super, and in their belief system, you have stories, what we would understand as preparation as fairy tales, um, where you have this uh, fairy tale terrific story but it's not the real story what the real story is is embedded within the allegories and the symbols and the language that are used to to write the story and so that um, they will argue that jesus never was resurrected which is again has been proposed uh, a lot late even a lot lately even within the Christian church and yeah. and it's not important that he didn't physically resurrect it's 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 the meaning behind what you're trying to do to be able to evolve yourself into godhood and that's the gnostic interpretive approach so who would be i mean so so you take 
Jesus down to a prophet. So who would the focus, the titular head, not not meaning Pope-wise, but, but who would this religion be worshipping? You'd be religion, you'd be, one would be uh, worshipping the pantheon of gods that was around since prehistory. And so you, you've got a hierarchy of, of people that are going to be presented. Uh, you know, you've got constant reminders of this with the, you know, the pantheon that's in, um, you know, the days of the week, which represent the seven wandering stars, the seven, you know, gods of, of, of uh, you know, that's in essentially every religion around the world. So all they're going to present is, is that each of these gods are, you know, the same god, just a different name. And that's the pantheon that is going to be reintroduced uh, with, with the Babylon religion. So in, in many ways it goes back to paganism almost. Yes. Huh. And they're going to argue that, and they're going to argue that Christianity went rogue and that Judaism went rogue and that Islam <laughs> went rogue and that um, you have a, and where they're going to, they'll, they'll attack it at uh, first will probably be with Moses. And their argument tends to be, from what my research has shown, is, is that they're going to say that Moses didn't bring back monotheism from Egypt. Moses was educated at Heliopolis and the Great White Brotherhood that was located there at that time. And he was yeah. sworn into oaths and to honor the pantheon of gods that we've been talking about. And this is the religion that he took back to Israel. But with the creation of monarchy in israel they created this rogue monotheist religion to sort of raise the mythos of the new monarchy and so you cut off the three monotheist religions that moses were saying that moses was a polytheist and they'll discredit paul as being a heretic just as he's the one that's said to be a heretic in the uh, dead sea scrolls for raising jesus to deity status and yeah. so that's to me where where they would sort of hit it at. And you know, as a Christian, we have to understand that Moses um, did was educated at Heliopolis, and that he was raised to be an adept, a bloodline adept, because he was taken into the Pharaoh's family. And this answers the mysterious story in the Book of Jude about. Um, the story of Satan coming to claim Moses' body after he died, and God has sent Moses to stop that. And that Satan was just declaring what was his based on Moses swearing the oaths to him and his counsel of gods while being raised in uh, polytheism. Um, from a Christian perspective, Michael is able to take... Uh, Moses and free him from the bonds of Satan's legal uh, claim because God is greater than all the other angels, all the angels. And he trumps this uh, oath uh, because he's the omnipotent God. But it does underscore that Moses would have been educated in the, in, in the mysteries at, at Heliopolis. And so they'll make arguments like that and they'll make very, very persuasive arguments. And also look for them to say that Jesus and Mary Magdalene, because Jesus would therefore not have been 
crucified to the death and would have been taken off before uh, he died. And they'll use scripture like it, like you'll get a passage in the New Testament where, where Pilate was surprised that uh, Jesus had died so soon uh, as sort of a reference to show, no, he didn't really die, and that he was nursed back to health, and he married Mary Magdalene, and they had several children. Three is the usual number. Josephus being the third, who's get, who is taken to Glastonbury by Joseph of Ara, of Arimathea. He marries into the Camelot dynasties. Uh, a couple generations later, you have a female by the name of Aragon being um, born. She marries Aminabad of the Merovingian dynasty, and you have the scioning of the bloodlines into the Western um, royal bloodlines that go back to Jesus and Mary Magdalene, according to Gnostic sort of belief, that will scion into what they call the Elven bloodline. And the Elbegin, well, and the Elven bloodline <laughs> is the bloodline of the Tuatha-Dudanan or the giants. If if that's then the case, then even the bloodline of Jesus is corrupted at some point in time. Well, it would oh, be but if, if he it was didn't... true. Yes. Yeah. But But he wouldn't have. Yeah. But he wouldn't have. Okay. So from from the Gnostic perspective, he he didn't die at the cross. From the Christian perspective. He did die at the cross and was resurrected. But that bloodline is scioned into the Nephilim and Rephaim bloodline. So, yes, that would be corrupted. And they also scion in, if you can believe this, through the, the Merovingians as well, uh, Davidic bloodlines and uh, King Saul's uh, bloodlines. And from a European bloodline perspective, um, the... Uh, Benjamites were rewarded in the book of Joshua, the city of Jerusalem. And so when they crowned themselves uh, with their false messiah, their antichrist figure, their messiah, uh, in the temple at the time of the abomination, he will receive the king of Jerusalem title. And uh, the king of Jerusalem title is first sort of surfaces in 1101, or 1100 to 1101 with uh, Baldwin I, um, who is of the brother of Godfrey de Bullion, creator of the Knights Templar, and he and the Payon family and the Anjou family from the Lorraine region are part of the founding members of the Knights Templar, but they believe themselves to be the, the descendants of the last Merovingian, who is Dagobert. So they carry all of these bloodlines, and they crown themselves with the King of Jerusalem title that you know goes back through the Lorraine region, and then as, a, as that group, uh, families intermarry with the Habsburg dynasty. You get the Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty, and they're all with the title of the King of Jerusalem title. Then it passes on to the Bourbon family in the last couple of generations with Juan Carlos of Spain and now his son Philippe, who currently holds the King of Jerusalem title. Whether or not it's that line, there's actually there's actually three lines of uh, as it comes down through the last thousand years or just under a thousand years of uh, Anjou families that claim the King of Jerusalem title. So even within the West, you're going to have some disputes as to who's going to be the uh, actual King of Jerusalem. But they firmly believe in that in the Western bloodlines that they carry those bloodlines, which will be the pedigree that they present in the end time for their uh, for their Messiah. 
You know, it's 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 strange that um, the United States is supposedly, you know, the the peacekeepers or, or whatever, um, but but you you don't seem to have any major bloodline going on here. Is it just that we're such a new country that we aren't old enough to have one? I mean, certainly the European and the African and the Chinese and, you know, all of those have a history that goes back far greater than that of the United States. And yet the United States at this, well, prior to the last two years, had been a very important nation as as far as um, a world power. I don't think that we're... We're anywhere near that now, but is there a bloodline here, or are we just going to be blended in with older bloodlines like in Europe or something like that? You know, it's a really good question, and, uh, you know, certainly the U.S., you know, from the secret societies and the bloodlines perspective, it was created to be a country that they could sort of role model what a world government might look like in terms of independent states under one central government and that they thought that they could create this country that could help bring about the new world order. So I think the U.S. was kind of created at least as part of the agenda as being kind of the lapdog for the bloodline families of Europe to bring about this 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 end time scenario so that they can have this this uh, rendezvous with destiny and the showdown with, with the God of the Bible and try and win their independence from, from God forever. And so that's part of, you know, the reason that, that, that they're created. Nothing ever goes perfectly. And, um, but typically the U S does act as the European lapdog um, since they, you know, became powerful enough to do so. And you're right, they don't technically have bloodlines, but it's really kind of odd in two two sort of scenarios here, which is, is you know, I, I think it'll pay, pay, you know, pay dividends to watch in the next few years. First of all, most of the presidents, and I haven't checked the last two or three, but before that, they all took their genealogies back to the King John, who's part of the Plantagenet, which is a branch of the Anjou family. So that is always an interesting coincidence. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is is with what happened with Brexit. And now you have uh, England with the uh, Hanover family who changed their name to the Windsors and part of you know, the, the German bloodline uh, that um, you know, rules England they're no longer part of the European community. And I never thought I would see that happen. And I'm thinking now that you might see uh, an American and Great Britain and Canadian and maybe even Australian um, alliance, as you see some of the uh, the deals that uh, Biden made with, with Australia starting to form as being that recreated um, – British Empire, and obviously that would be ruled over by the Hanover bloodline, which are the Windsors, right? So that's a distinct uh-huh. possibility. Well, you said something very, very important, and I want to go back to it because we're, we are running slightly out of time. You just said something that you said the purpose of all of this, the one world government, the whole thing, was to gain our independence from God. Correct. 
as seen by the bloodlines because as seen, yeah. if you look, right, as opposed to what humankind may want, but we've been ruled over and brainwashed by them all through our history. So if you look at the angelic rebellion uh, and the book of Isaiah, it talks about Satan who wanted to uh, be like God. And to, ha- and to have his throne and his counsel like God, and to be separate from God. And so that was what was going on in the angelic rebellion. The angels would have known God intimately, and Satan would have been the most powerful, probably having many different titles and names and positions, just as he's known as a cherubim and a seraphim. Um, he's probably even had more and it was likely the high priest uh, with the with the seven jewels representing that as his, as his credentials that the Melchizedek order led by Jesus will finally accomplish when Jesus starts the millennium. And so he was not thinking he could kill God, wasn't thinking he could probably defeat God because he knew God was omnipotent. But he was trying to win a realm on his own away from God. And all through the antediluvian time with the Nephilim and through the beast empires, they're trying to win this war against God. And they want that showdown, and it will come about in the end time. And they want to have their throne raised up to be like God. And in fact, Antichrist in Daniel 8 will try and raise his throne into heaven with the support of Satan, and they'll actually bring down some starry host um, at the beginning of the last three and a half years after he takes power, because he receives his power from Satan. But they're just trying to win a separate realm to be away from God. So there's a there's a series of, of movies out there um, right now, and I'm just trying to... Um, remember it, Dr. Strange, as I recall, and particularly they identified it in in the first movie that they were trying to win Earth in that movie. And this is basically a movie about the the magical sciences of polytheism that are fighting against the dark lord of the universe that controls the whole universe except for the Earth at this point in time, and that they want, and that would represent the god of the Bible in polytheism, and that they're trying to win a negotiated peace to have their own world as separate. That would be a sort of a fairy tale story to what that story is is really talking about is is what is planned for the end time and what Satan tried to do. And all Antichrist figures try to raise their their throne to heaven just as Satan did. And so when you understand that, it starts to make sense of, of the Antichrist-type figures that would have been in each of the beast empires. It makes sense of Nimrod, and it, you know, it yeah. makes sense of what Antichrist is going to do in the end time. So, yeah, they want to have this showdown because they believe they can win, but they've been misled by the fallen angels who already know the fate is sealed. They think. I mean, you know, there's there's always. I mean, just just getting one world would never be enough. It would probably be good for a thousand years or so, and then it would be well, two would be better. So. Well, yeah, it, it always it, it, it would always work that way. 
Yeah, if you're saying if if uh, the fallen angels one, yeah. Amazing. If I understood you correctly, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it. it it's sort of like what, what. But when you look around and, and you see that that just about everybody who is fighting to do this one world order, the purpose of it is not for the world or humanity. It's for the greed of the Nephilim. It is, and it's the Game of Thrones, another allegory. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it's all it, it's all about that, and there can only be one family that would dominate their new age, uh, that will you know populate all the you know upper echelon around the world. But, but you know these these entities, these energies, whatever you want to call them are all so narcissistic that there's no way they will ever blend together. They will always be um, jockeying for position, wouldn't they be? Yeah, they would be. And so if, if let's say they, you know, even when they get control for a time as the Ten Kings, right, you're going to have uh-huh. escalating wars between them. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars um, until you get to the point of all-out war with the Gog War. And that shows up in Revelation 9 with the 200 million man army that many people confuse. I think many people confuse with Armageddon. And it's the same type of creatures that show up in these biological weapons that are in this army and that show up in Joel 1 and 2 and is... Uh, a war that's separate from the Armageddon War that shows up in, in, in Joel 3 and is the same war for the timing as the Gog War, um, which has references to giants in its name. And I think that's a reference that they'll be led by the bloodlines of, the, of those peoples and possibly by the descendants of those giants or giants that maybe come out of the abyss because the Revelation 9 War follows the first woe, which the fallen angels for the crimes they created against humanity and creation were put into the abyss will come out just before the midpoint of the last seven years. And then after that, you have not as part of the first woe, but as an extension, perhaps, because it's in the same passage of Revelation 9, you have this 200 million man war that breaks out. So they're going to be leading wars uh, that is designed to destroy humanity throughout this generation. Well, and, you know, what gets me, you know, 50 years ago when you talked war, you, you were talking tanks and guns and bombs. And today when you're talking wars, you're talking biohazards and you're talking nuclear. And, and you know, they could very easily wipe the whole planet clean. They, they could, and they're going to scare people into the Babel syndrome. And here's another interesting thing as we get right down to, I guess, the last part of the show. Um, I'll, and I'll, I'll get it in now because it sort of connects back perhaps to, uh, you know, Chernobyl and, and the Ukraine. And so in Revelation 6, you get Wormwood. And uh, Wormwood, uh-huh. it, it, it makes all, it makes a 25% of the, uh, Water's bitter, and uh, all the words as you take this 
back that, you know, show up with the wormwood passage goes back to a poisoning or making the waters bitter. And in Revelation 6, you have 25% destruction of the earth. So the wars that are happening in Revelation 6 are going to wipe out 25% of the earth in terms of vegetation, in terms of poisoning of the waters. And this is before the trumpet judgments where the 200 million man army, Joel 1 and 2, Gog War show up, which is going to destroy 33% of the population and the vegetation and the waters around the world and, you know, everything in the, in, in the you know, same proportions in, in the ocean. And Wormwood, as you take that back to Hebrew, is associated and kind of close to, to hemlock. So it's like a poison. So this clearly seems to be some sort of weaponry, like a nuclear weapon or something, or a biological weapon. And noting the Chinese said the next war is going to be fought with biological weapons that, you know, affects 25% of the drinking water around the world. And it, it, so it's either biological or it's nuclear. And so, you know, I can imagine nuclear plants being uh, blown up or some nuclear bombs being dropped. And it's going to be very apocalyptic, yet there's worse yet to come. Taking that back to the Ukraine, Chernobyl, as it's understood in, in its original language, means wormwood. And oh, wow. we all know what happened at Chernobyl in the early 80s. It was a nuclear disaster. I don't know whether there's any connection there or not, but it just seems like it's too big of a coincidence. It's like a birth pang and a foreshadow, uh, I guess is what I'm saying. And so, yeah, there's, there, there's going to be significant apocalyptic scenarios as the wars and rumors of wars continue that are directly related, and that's a contrived catastrophe. There doesn't have to be war. You don't have to have biological weapons. You don't have to have pestilence caused by human uh, design. You don't have to have pandemics that would come out of catastrophes like war or earthquakes or pestilence, but they will all be working together coming forward, and then you're going to be having the false prophets who are predicting these horrible things huh. that they've contrived to do. Well, what a bright and sunny thing this is. Um, <laughs> and One should one, one <laughs> never want to go through the end time, even though it comes with Jesus coming uh, from a Christian perspective and, you know, the millennium of, that happens thereafter and then on to eternity, but nobody should want to go through the end times. It will be too horrific. Yeah, it definitely, it, do, it does not sound like fun, but, but you've given us some, some amazing information here. I, I, you know, this has been a very educational show. And originally we were going to do your um, your new book that's not all finished yet. Um, but this is fascinating, and I'm so glad that, that you know, we, we did go into all of this because it's an education. And especially because of the times we're going through, it, it gives people a little understanding of what what could be at the very foundation of what's going on. Yeah, I would encourage people to look beyond the uh, obvious 
things that they're presenting to us and maybe look towards to more of a grander scale, even though it'll be messy on the players that are trying to, to, to orchestrate things. Things aren't as quite as what they present them to be. And there's a, there's, um, you have to get to the money and you have to get to the power if you want to understand things. And that's behind the curtain of what they're showing us. So you have to find a way to be able to peek over, under, and get a glimpse at it. And when you start to understand the ancient history and the rivalries of the bloodlines and what they were designed and created to do, things start to make sense for what we're seeing today. And when you connect that to what the Bible says about end-time prophecy. Wow. Well, that said, I want to thank you so much for this amazing show. Um, what is your website so people can go check your website out and and read your first book that has a second book coming? Yes, my website is the genesis6conspiracy.com. That's the genesis with the number 6conspiracy.com. And on the website... There is a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters, and you'll get a good feel for um, whether it's the right book for you or not. And if you like what's in, in there or you like what I was talking about today and, and uh, a number of the things I do talk about in, in, in the book, not, not specifically to Putin, but things all around that, and I'll also talk about the Ten Kings and things like that. Um, uh-huh. You can buy the book off of my website um, and get a signed copy from me by hitting the Buy Now icon. Um, and on that buy now, buy now icon, you can also have the option to connect over to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or BarnesandNoble.com, and, or over to the Kindle version to get the digital copy. So lots of ways to get the book through there. And if you wanted to uh, get a, uh, a document a little bit on uh, Putin, I've got about a five-page document on Putin. Um, you can contact me through the website, and I'll send that to you. It'll show you the bloodlines back to Kiev, uh, his grandparents, the Putyanin bloodlines. That'll be all there. And uh, I also have a 10 point guideline I use for prophecies that will explain how I, I approach prophecies. So um, you can un- sort of give you a better idea how I, I come to, to my understanding of, of end time prophecy. So you, you can request that or ask me a question or, or make some comments. And you can also uh, get my book through most online bookstores. They carry it. And if you wanted to support your local bookstore, you can have them order it in because it's distributed for my publisher at uh, or by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania, so they can order it in for you. So lots of ways to get a hold of the book, and that's the best way to get a hold of me or on Messenger if you wanted to ask me a question or make some contacts, and I'm under Gary Wayne, and uh, you'll see something on there about the Genesis 6 conspiracy as well. Yeah, and, and the book is a fabulous book. I mean, I, I did... I read it. I've read it twice or three times, um, and I always learn something new. So um, it's a fabulous book to have. Everybody should have it in their library. They really should. And I I recommend a hard copy because you're going to want to underline and highlight. Um, Gary, <laughs> thank you so much. I'm getting a countdown like 30 seconds. So thank you so much. I look so forward to uh, the new book and to doing this again. Terrific. I do too. So, 
Okay. Good night now, and good night, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an amazing adventure for me, and certainly it's it's a show I'm going to go back and listen to again, too. So have a great evening. Stay well, stay happy, and stay informed. Good night now. <laughs>